If you're visiting, my name is Steve Adams. I'm the pastor here at Eastgate Bible Church. If you're a regular, that's my name. Hasn't changed. Although I did once have a job where there was another guy called Steve and they said, come up with another name. So I said Davo. And for the two years I worked there, we ran with it. I answered the phone as Davo. I met clients as Davo. I was Davo. It was great. Anyway, um, totally unrelated. Um, on the back table, there is this book. Um, it's provided by the Bible Society, which they are providing free to churches, which is a kid's book um, telling the Christmas story. So whether you have kids yourself or you're going to be sharing Christmas with kids um, over the Christmas break, um, please take one of those. They're free to us and they're free for you to take as well. Um, so please make use of those on the back table. Okay, we're going to open up in prayer as we... Uh, begin to unpack some of the joy and wonder that's in that passage we've had read. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the birth of Christ is indeed something worth rejoicing in. Not just because someone was born, but because why they were born, where that fits into your plan, and how that addresses our very deepest need. Lord, restore to us a sense of awe and wonder in that wonderful simplicity of what Jesus Christ has come to do in that beautiful offer that he holds out to all of humanity. And so as we look to your word this morning, encourage us, challenge us, cause us to think deeply about how others have responded to you. And may our hearts be captured for you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in my family... The Adams boys are notoriously difficult to buy presents for. My dad has absolutely no hobbies and he hates money being wasted. So anything you buy is probably not going to be much good. Both myself and my brother don't ever have any major hobbies that lend to an obvious guess of what sort of things to buy presents for. And so the family around us, they always find that hard. But I think... That's got to be nothing. Imagine you're a son of someone who's exceedingly wealthy. Imagine you're Bill Gates' son and you think, what do I get dad for Christmas? Because someone in that sort of position and has that sort of finances available to them, if they want something, they've probably got it because they just can. What do you buy for someone in high position of power and authority and money that the old socks and jocks just doesn't feel like it's going to cut the mustard. Even the nice things that you and I might buy for one another kind of seem out of place if we think to buy these for someone who the world thinks highly of. Or what if you got a last-minute invite to the Queen's house for Christmas? You know, when you get a last-minute invite, you've usually got a couple of boxes of Cadbury favourites that you've got as a backup reserve in case you need a present. You think, uh, maybe, maybe not going far enough for the Queen. But it's interesting the way that we think about that, isn't it? Without actually having a formal reason why, there's something in our mind that says that if someone is of a particular position or stature that they deserving or worthy of more. And you'd be mistaken if you think that's a new and a modern idea. Like if we go back into the world of Jesus in the first century, it was a common thought 
For Jews to think that the person who is going well, who's going successful, they're wealthy, must be good in the sight of God, that God has blessed them with those things. And then on the other hand, those who aren't going so well, might be unwell, don't have a great financial status, that maybe they're not so favourable in the eyes of God. Now that was a false presumption, and it's a false presumption that Jesus multiple times rebuked and showed that's not how value is seen in the eyes of God. But it's the same sort of false presumption that causes some people to look at our passage like this morning and think, there must have been something exceedingly special about Mary that she deserved this privilege to bring Jesus into the world above all other women. Though she'd earned it, she deserved it. No one else did. But to presume that she is bestowed with this blessing and this privilege because somehow she'd earned it, it was a reward for her good deeds, takes away so much of the beauty of this passage and the whole meaning and what makes it special. Have you ever noticed that we love a good story in a movie where it's someone who comes from humble beginnings and it ends up, and they end up in a great scene of triumph at the end. Why do we, why do we love that sort of story? And I put it to you: the potential. I think it's part of our story that we know, and in the overall scheme of things, we're a little bit insignificant. Things around us might not go always go so well. Maybe we've even got a bit of a dark past. But still, without anyone prompting us, there's something within us that says, I think I'm made for something more than this. And it's this hope that this child brings that Mary and Elizabeth know about is why they are outbreaking in song and rejoicing in this passage we read this morning. And it's the very reason why we sing at Christmas, joy to the world, the Lord has come. His coming brings joy. When you think about one of the first speeches Jesus made recorded in Luke chapter 4, this is what he said he's here for. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's coming to set captives free, not just in a humanitarian sense, but in a much deeper, significant, spiritual sense that we'll see as we work our way through this passage. His coming was something to get excited about. His coming is still something to be excited about. So let's have a look to see what all this hoo-ha is that we still celebrate 2,000 plus years on. Firstly, we're going to look at an odd couple. Mary and Elizabeth, they are an odd couple to feature at such a significant part in this story. Who's this good news for and what is it? That's kind of where we're headed this morning. 
When I say the odd couple, I'm not saying that somehow there's just something really weird and quirky about Elizabeth and Mary. Nor am I saying is they come back with a remake of a great 70s TV show. Nor am I saying that they are a couple in a romantic sense and anything like that. But given the importance of the events that are being described here, they are unlikely characters to be sort of front and centre in it. You think, if this is such a defining event that all of history is oriented around this birth of this child coming into this world, surely it's going to be surrounded with significant people of great status. But we're introduced to two pregnant ladies. Neither had anything by way of significant status in the world in which they lived. You've got Mary, a pregnant virgin, which is... A strange idea that God had placed this child within her who wasn't married. Now, I know in our days it's not uncommon to go down to the shops and you'll see lots of people who are not married who've got babies and no one really batters an eyelid over that. But in the first century, that was major shame. You kept that to yourself. You kept out of sight because you were considered a downcast. You were considered out. You were looked down upon. You certainly were not esteemed. In fact, we read in Matthew's account that when Joseph found out she was pregnant, he sought to divorce her. Like, he's not stupid. He understands biology. He's like, the, she's pregnant. I know I had nothing to do with it. Going to divorce her on the sly, on the quiet. Until an angel comes along and says, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. This is what's in her. God has given her this child. And you'll name him Jesus because he will save a people from their sins. You know what the weird bit is? He believed it. Now, I'm not saying it's weird because I don't believe the Bible, but put yourself in his shoes. Your fiancé is pregnant. An angel comes to you. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. It certainly hasn't happened to me. Tells him that God's put this baby in there who's going to be the saviour of the world. And he just goes on with it. So you've got an outcast pregnant teen girl. Now we're not told specifically her age, but according to normal traditions, if she was betrayed in the normal age period, it would have been normally between 12 and 14 years of age. Who's got the baby Jesus inside of her. Her cousin Elizabeth, who was old... Like it says, she was barren. That's why she hasn't been able to have a child up until now. Again, from a first century mindset, to be barren, there was seen to be a curse of God upon them. She's married to a priest from an unknown, insignificant town. So in terms of how these two ladies were viewed amongst their peers, you got one, though, that would have thought was grossly immoral because she was pregnant and she was not married, and another one you thought was cursed by God because she'd been barren. Now, neither of those statements are true, but from the eyes of the world around them, they were outcasts. They were certainly not special. Yet through these two women, outcast by the world, we see a blessed by God and esteemed with great value. While we can presume what the world actually thought about them around them, we know what God thinks. When we first get introduced to Elizabeth and and her husband Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 says they were both righteous before God. 
walking blameless in the commandments and the statutes of God. So despite the fact that some are thinking, oh, she must be cursed by God, she's got no children, her husband, sure, he's a priest, but some unknown back town little sort of place where they're from, in the eyes of God, they were walking in righteousness. They esteemed God highly. Regardless of what others thought, she was a humble and godly woman. But you know the one that I'm always amazed by? Mary. And sometimes people are reluctant to say anything to appreciate Mary lest they think that people are going down a Roman Catholic line and making too much of her. But if she's like 12 to 14 year old girl potentially, an angel comes to her, weird again, says you're going to have a baby, the Holy Spirit has placed this child within you and this child is going to be the long expected saviour of the world. Think about a 12 to 14 year old girl you know and think how would they react? We'll see how Mary reacts. Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Jesus told, you got a baby put in you by God. It's going to be the saviour of the world. And she's like, oh, thanks for the update. Can't wait to see how this all pans out. Both of these women, humble women, godly women, and if you could say, I think it's fair to say in most cases, are an expression of greater faith than most of the men you see in the entirety of the gospel accounts. There's great rejoicing in this gathering. Mary's rejoicing, Elizabeth's rejoicing, even John the Baptist inside Elizabeth's tummy's rejoicing at the birth and the coming of this child, Jesus Christ. And it's not just a case of two ladies getting together. Woohoo, we're, we're relatives. We're both pregnant. We're going to have babies at the same time. We can do baby play dates and get togethers. Now, this is what Elizabeth says Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? That's a profound statement from Elizabeth. The mother of my Lord. That's a big statement she's saying about this child. He is the Lord. He is the one when David said in Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Elizabeth says, this is that one. This is the coming Messiah. This is the Christ. You want to know what's so outstanding about that? In all four of the gospel accounts, there are only three people who rightly state that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. Incidentally, two of them are women. Elizabeth, Martha and Peter are the only three people in all four of the gospel accounts to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ. So with all of this excitement, it's got to be good news. But good news for who? For the privileged, for the elite, for the religious leaders. It's pretty clear that both Elizabeth and Mary see it as being good news for them. Maybe it's because, you know, Elizabeth's a priest's wife. Mary seems to be such a trusting young girl. Surely they should expect some sort of special perks from God, shouldn't they? But if there's anything that's abundantly clear as you read through this passage... They're kind of like the 
this shouldn't happen to ladies like us. They are, they are amazed, they are in awe that God would bless them with such privilege. They're like, we don't deserve this. These ladies aren't saying and rejoicing, saying, man, I've put in all the hard yards and now I'm just reaping the rewards. There's wonder and amazement. God would do this with and for me? Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. I've underlined a few things there for emphasis. Let's look at Mary. She's not like, I deserve this. I rejoice in God, my Saviour. She doesn't conceive herself to be perfect. She puts it alongside every single one of us, one who is in need of a Saviour. One who is of humble estate, one who is only a servant. And she's just in awe that this God, this mighty God, has done great things for me. Now, I'd hate anyone to think that I'm criticising or slandering Mary by saying that she needed a saviour. She did, that's, that's the testimony of her own lips. She wasn't perfect. She was an ordinary, everyday person. That's the beauty. If there's anything I'm going to be critical of, it's those who are reluctant to appreciate and acknowledge that Mary was a godly, faithful woman. She was humble. She was faithful. She was godly. And she treasured God's word. Just read through that section that we've just looked at and you'll see all the cross-references. She is a girl who has God's word so richly stored in her mind, it just naturally comes out of her mouth. She's reflecting upon all of the wonderful promises of God as she praises him in song. Or to use the language of the New Testament, she's allowed the word of God to dwell in her richly. Shaping her thoughts, her words and her actions. So rather than criticise her, when I read this passage, I think I'd like to be a lot more like her. But why would this humble godly woman rejoice that a saviour has come? Surely someone this good godly doesn't need a saviour? So what is this good news? And why does it bring such joy? Because if there's something that promises joy, I think it's safe to say people want it. Like if someone was guaranteed that something would bring them joy, I can't imagine there's too many people who think, no thanks, I'll just take misery. That seems to be the opposite of joy. Misery is the way to go. Yet the weird thing is, many people hear this same message of joy And for some, it is joy. They hear it and go, that's exactly what my soul has been longing for. I need this. And there's rejoicing. There's others who hear the exact same message and they think, that is idiotic. That's the last thing I need. It puts people in sort of two different frameworks, two different mindsets. And as you read through Mary's song, you see this repeated contrast between those who think highly of themselves, those who are ranked by their their achievements and their stature and their money. It says those are the ones, 
those who think of themselves highly in their own eyes, those who are kind of self-made, those who think they need nothing because they've established their own empire. Despite the way they feel sufficient, there's that repeated phrase, God brings them low. Then on the other hand, there's those who understand their insufficiency, who understand that they are just beggars, desperately in need of God, servants, humble, poor, lowly. They are the ones, says God, lifts up. And Mary's song is just full of promises from the Old Testament. And she finishes on this one in verses 54 to 55, saying, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She goes back and says, you know this promise was back in the very first book of the Bible that through Abraham's offspring all nations will be blessed. She says, that offspring, singular, is this child, is Jesus Christ. Mary understands this child fulfills that promise. The blessing to all nations is going to come through this child. The rejoicing isn't just because he is born. I mean, it's exciting that the Son of God was born into this world. It's not just that he's making a royal visit in that sort of sense, but it's about why he came. Because when you read it, you think, why would he? Leave all of the perfections of heaven with that perfect unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit to enter into this mess of this world amongst the people who have, by and large, rebelled against him, turned their backs on him, saying, we don't need you, man. Well, we saw from his first speech, he came to set captives free. On another occasion, he says, I've come to lay down my life as a ransom for many. He was on a rescue mission. Now, I don't say rescue mission like a good adventure movie where someone goes on some high-risk rescue mission and there's good odds they're going to die and it's not going to work out. This is the almighty God who does and achieves everything he sets out to do. This is a guaranteed rescue mission to set us free from the curse that we've all inherited through Adam and Eve. That's the story back in the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, there was blessing to the entirety of the world. Adam and Eve, perfect relationships with God, perfect relationships with one another, perfect relationship with the created world around them. But when they rebelled, which incidentally their loving God warned them of the consequences of death if they did turn their back on God, Well, they inherited a new identity. They had new traits. And they passed on a new inheritance. No longer were they in perfect relationship with God. Their new identity was separated from God. No longer were they lovingly and humbly walking with God. They were rebellious. Selfish. No longer did they have the inheritance of eternal life. They had an inheritance of death. And just like we pass down things genetically through our family, all of us descended through Adam and Eve and inherited those same things. We've inherited that identity, separated from God. We've inherited those traits that we, by nature, are selfish, rebellious. We don't want God in our life. And we've passed on that inheritance of death. 
That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to set us free from the curse of our sin. The punishment which he said to Adam and Eve was death is the same punishment that you and I are headed towards. An eternal death. Yet Jesus came to bear that punishment. His death on the cross was as our substitute in our place. We receive a new identity as a child of God, his own very family, precious in his sight. We're told even loved by God to the same extent that he loved his son Jesus. We're given new traits. He calls us to become more and more like his son Jesus, which, yeah, we're all still a work in process, but he'll bring that to completion when we see him face to face and receive a new inheritance which is no longer eternal death, but eternal life with the glorious almighty God forever. This is why these women rejoice. The Saviour has come. He has come to rescue, to restore, to reconcile, to save, to bless all nations. But as they thought about that, they didn't think, I hope I'm good enough for this. What if I'm not good enough? They never thought about that. Because you know what? None of us are. That's the whole point. They under, God chose people who have no status in this world because our status means nothing in the eyes of God. None of us are good enough to do it by ourselves. But the other good news is none of us are too bad that we're outside of the grace, the forgiveness that Jesus offers. His death on the cross was death for all sin. That every single person who realises they haven't honoured that God has given them life and breath and everything says, God, I haven't honoured you. As a matter of fact, I rebel. I've been lived as your enemy. I want to turn to you. I want to turn from my sin. I want to trust that Jesus' death was the death I deserve and I want to live for you all the days of my life. Mary rejoiced in this God who lifts up the lowly because it's only those who are humble enough to acknowledge that we need a saviour who will respond to this wonderful offer of salvation. I remember when I was a young fella, I've heard time and time and time and time again, Steve, you need to be saved. I thought that was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. I was going pretty great. What do I need saving from? It was quite a humbling moment when I realised that was actually a true statement. I know I've shared this before. I didn't even tell my parents at first because I kind of felt like it, it meant that they'd won. <laughs> there is something to rejoice in. God came to us. And he didn't give us what we deserved. He came to set us free from what we deserved. He came to restore us to him, to reconcile us to himself. Regardless of what we've done, regardless of our status, regardless of our position in society. So at Christmas we rejoice that the Son has come. Not just because he's come, but because he has come to provide the way of salvation that absolutely no other way could. For that reason, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, We confess at times that we, we can come familiar, 
find it commonplace that you would come to save us. And without actually saying it, sometimes we even go down the pathway as though, yeah, we're pretty good, we deserved it. But Lord, there is nothing specifically about us that deserve to be saved. It is only a reflection of your character who is merciful, who is gracious and holds out your hand to offer salvation to us. We thank you that in the coming of Jesus was the coming of a saviour, the saviour of the world for all who would turn to him. We pray for everyone here. We pray for our families. We pray for people all around the world that they would hear, respond to, that they would be humbled and see their need of a saviour and know the joy of the saviour who adopts them into the very family of God, who rescues us from what we deserve into the privileged position of being your children. We give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.